Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max. Thanks very much for tuning in for the show. We're speaking here on Wednesday, October 25th, 2023. Today, we are again discussing New York City's housing crisis, but from a different angle and with an expert who has a lot of interesting things to say. I won't spend time now outlining the city's housing crisis, as is well known by regular listeners of this show and just New Yorkers trying to find an affordable place to live. The city's supply of housing is far too limited. Rents are far too high. Homelessness is at record levels. Public housing is crumbling. And there's been limited government action to address the deepening problem. Limited, not none, but limited. Elected officials and others have been coming around more and more to realize that ambitious solutions are needed. The question is whether the powers that be at the city, state, federal levels will actually do anywhere near enough to address the housing crisis that New York City especially faces, but we won't, of course, leave out the suburbs and other parts of the state as well. There are many solutions that have been put on the table, whether by advocates and other non-governmental experts or by Governor Kathy Hochul in her sweeping but yet-to-be-passed plan unveiled early this year. Mayor Eric Adams and his own plans, including zoning reform to allow more housing across the city and others. Even some legislators at the city and state levels have their ideas and proposals, and some of the borough presidents in New York City have also recognized the problem and released ideas and plans. Undoubtedly, New York City needs the state, but there has been limited action in Albany, and it's unclear what will pass in 2024, but housing is certain to, again, be a focus area of the state budget and legislative session that begins in January. As Mayor Adams has said, among others, part of the response must be to look at what the city can do on its own. And that's going to be our main focus here today, in part by discussing zoning, which is essential to housing and something that the city actually controls. But as my guest today will explain, zoning is essential, but it's not enough. Joining me today is Howard Slatkin, Executive Director of Citizens Housing and Planning Council, or CHPC. CHPC is an independent research and education nonprofit dedicated to addressing the city's housing and planning needs. Prior to joining CHPC as executive director at the beginning of this year, at the beginning of 2023, Howard Slacken spent more than two decades at the New York City Department of City Planning. He finished his tenure there as deputy executive director for strategic planning, overseeing long-term planning, policy development, and citywide land use initiatives. He led efforts to increase housing supply, affordability, and sustainability, as well as neighborhood planning initiatives. Among other roles, he was also city planning's first director of sustainability. Over his last several years at the Department of City Planning, Howard Slatkin led strategic planning unit that I mentioned that designed previous efforts at citywide zoning reform, meaning changes to land use rules across the city not just on more sporadic plots of land or subsections of neighborhoods. He helped design the early iterations of the Adams administration's new proposal for citywide zoning reform aimed at building more housing across the city. That's known as City of Yes for Housing Opportunity. And he's now at Citizens Housing and Planning Council offering solutions for how to move forward, studies of existing programs, critiques of what government officials are and aren't doing to address the housing crisis in New York, and he's here with me today. By the way, if you missed it, I recently had 
New York City Department of City Planning Director Dan Gorodnik on the show to discuss the new City of Yes for Housing Opportunity proposal. So you can catch up on that episode of the show after this one. If you didn't listen to it yet, they can go in either order, I'm sure. I also recently had Brooklyn Borough President Antonio Reynoso on the show to discuss his new comprehensive plan for Brooklyn, which has a heavy focus on housing and land use. Also worth checking that out if you haven't. On this episode of the show, Howard Slatkin is going to help put the city's proposed zoning changes into broader perspective, but also explain the role of zoning in the current housing crisis in the city, where New York City has simply not come close to building enough housing for its actual and potential population growth. He'll outline some of the zoning and housing lessons of the Bloomberg and de Blasio years, offer some advice, maybe, to Mayor Adams for the coming years, and talk about what the city needs most from the state in the 2024 Albany session. There's a lot to get to here to further understand many pieces of the larger housing puzzle, including things like affordable housing financing, housing typologies, and more. Very briefly, before I bring Howard Slacken on, if you've missed any recent episodes of the show, find them all at Max Politics, wherever you get podcasts, along with City Planning Director Gorodnik and Brooklyn BP Reynoso. Recent guests have included City Council Speaker Adrian Adams, New York City Comptroller Brad Lander, and others. I also recently hosted a candidate debate on the show between two sitting city council members, Ari Kagan and Justin Brannon. Because of redistricting and other shifts, they are now running against each other in this fall's general election. It's a very interesting Southern Brooklyn race for the new 47th City Council District, but it has citywide implications as Republicans look to increase recent gains in the city council and elsewhere. And Brannon, as the powerful chair of the city council's finance committee, fights for political survival in this purple district. So a very interesting debate hosted here on the show recently. Check those or any other episodes out after this one. If you're here because housing and zoning issues are your main interest or focus, along with the conversations with Dan Gorodnik and Antonio Reynoso, there's a lot of good conversations in the podcast feed. We've been focusing on these issues a lot over the last year or so. All right. But don't worry about any of those right now. Right now, it's Howard Slacken, Executive Director of Citizens Housing and Planning Council and formerly a top official at the New York City Department of City Planning. Howard, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Ben. Uh, thanks for joining me. So I want to tap into uh, your your wisdom, your knowledge over these decades working in city planning and on, on these major housing issues. And now, of course, with fresh perspective coming out of city government uh, and leading CHPC here. So first, big picture. What are a few of the sort of core established facts about our city's housing crisis that everyone or pretty much everyone should agree on at this point? Uh, I already said in the introduction multiple times, New York City hasn't been building enough housing. Uh, that should sort of be seemingly a fact that just about everybody agrees on, except maybe some people who just want New York City not to change, not to grow. Um, but generally speaking, most people agree New York City has not been building enough housing. What are some other pieces of the housing crisis that you think should be sort of broadly accepted? Are there a couple other things that should be sort of just like common accepted knowledge at this point? Yes. I, mean, I think that, you know, starting with the right fact base and the right understanding and a, a shared 
common understanding of the problem that we're all trying to grapple with is crucial to being able to, to get down the road on this. So at the risk of repeating, we aren't building enough housing in New York City. Um, and it's important to understand that not only is this a problem, but it makes all of our other problems worse. Uh, when there's less housing, you see price increases, rents increase across the board, and you see more people who fall out the bottom end of the market. You can think of it, uh, my, my favorite analogy for, for housing in an environment of scarcity is musical chairs, right? The fewer chairs there are, the less housing there is, the more people that you see left standing at the end of the of, uh, uh, when the music stops, mm -hmm. some of these people are homeless. Some of these people are are underhoused. Some of these people end up doubled up. But the more heightened competition affects everybody, everyone ends up paying more uh, for their housing. Less housing gives landlords the ability to charge more rent for the exact same unit, and it puts more tenants in a vulnerable position. So all of the things that the stresses that people are feeling are exacerbated by the shortage. And this isn't a new phenomenon. I think it's not, oh, we've stopped building enough housing in recent years. This is a longstanding issue. If you go back 40 years to 1980, since then, we've been building housing at about half the pace that we did for the four decades before that, from 1940 to 1980. Now, okay, so we're building housing more slowly than we did between 1940 and 1980. What's the big deal? Well, between 1940 and 1980, New York City's population didn't increase at all. But since 1980, our population has increased by over a million and a half people. And we're building housing at a slower pace. So these two things go together. Um, there's a, a kind of fact-based question for me that that is a, a pet peeve of mine. I've found that in my years as a planner, um, in my years working in New York City government, talking to ordinary people and urbanists, New Yorkers seem to be locked into this mindset where we hear in our in on one shoulder and on the other shoulder, Jane Jacobs arguing with Robert Moses about what's the right thing to do. Um, and the answer to that question is to ignore both of them. Because Jane Jacobs and Robert Moses were arguing about what New York City was like in 1950 and 1960, which is a city that wasn't growing, that wasn't expected to grow. And what they were arguing about was how to make the city a viable entity for the future when the suburbs were growing, when cities were dying all over the country. They were looking to sort of stop loss in New York City, and they were talking about a completely different set of goals. These are the only years in the entire history of New York City from its very beginnings when its population wasn't growing. They're the, the exception that proves the rule that what we need to be doing is planning as if we are growing. And we've forgotten how to do that. We haven't been building housing at the pace that we did even when we weren't growing. So this is just a sort of a, you know, it, it's not a different point about not having enough housing, mm -hmm. but it's a way to recontextualize the way we're thinking. Unless we're planning for ways to have enough housing for ourselves as a growing city, we're going to be cursed to have these issues forever, these skyrocketing rents, this intractable problem with, with homelessness and housing insecurity. And should it be sort of accepted broadly as fact that the city's zoning rules are a major contributor to the limited housing growth we've seen? despite demand or is it is that not such a certainty and it's uh, much more that it should be accepted as fact that we've simply lost a lot of the political will to uh, increase housing supply at the pace needed? Or well, both, <laughs> and this is when I think two other trips back in in history are are, are helpful to to put this question in context. Um, yes, 
absolutely zoning is contributing to the scarcity of housing and it is in part by design. Um, it's not that we intended to create a housing shortage, but in 1961, when the city adopted a new zoning resolution, there was a decision made to ratchet back the capacity of the city for housing by 80%. Uh, it was seen at the time, 1960, the city was grappling with questions of, is the city too noisy, dirty, and chaotic? Uh, is everyone going to want to live in leafy suburbs for the foreseeable future? Is New York City going to die? How can we make New York City a more suburban kind of environment? And uh, a set of zoning reforms were adopted in 1961, a whole new zoning resolution. Um, and one of the key features was that for the first time, the framers of that zoning uh, ordinance said that they would use zoning as a limit on the capacity of the city to grow. That one of the flaws of the zoning that existed before was that it didn't place limits on the ability of the city to grow. So they were drawing lessons that I think we really would not share today. And as a matter of fact, the lessons that they imposed on us have contributed to this. You know, we, we, we have a zoning resolution that has created an environment of enforced scarcity. Um, there's another say, say, say a little bit real quick about what zoning is and just sort of the major types of zoning, just in case we have people listening who are not up to speed on this because we want to be welcoming to people who are just sort of getting into this conversation or, or you know, hearing about zoning in detail for the first time or, or first few times. Uh, say just say a little bit about what it is. And even and if you want to use the 1961 zoning uh, framework to you know, give a few examples of how it did that, that would be great too. Absolutely. Um, the, <clears throat> the demystification of zoning is like literally part of my job. So this is, this is, sure. this is really important. <laughs> hey, that's part of why you're here. Yeah. Exactly. So zoning is a set of regulations uh, that apply to land throughout the entire city. Uh, they control the use of the property, what you're allowed to do on it, whether it can be used for housing, for retail, for offices, for uh, community facilities like hospitals and schools, uh, for industrial uh, activity, warehouses, manufacturing, etc. Um, there are regulations about use, and then there are regulations about bulk. And what that means is basically the shape and size of buildings that are allowed to be built. So zoning imposes some limitations on those things. And when it started out, then in 1916, when New York City adopted the first comprehensive zoning uh, ordinance of, of any uh, uh, city in the US, uh, those limitations were pretty loose and broad. Um, they were designed to sort of prevent the most egregious problems as the framers saw it. Um, but they didn't uh, do things like for instance, uh, try to limit the theoretical capacity of the city for housing to be built. What they did is they limited the ability of new buildings to cast shadows on neighboring buildings by imposing what are called height and setback requirements, which is that the, the building can sit at a certain location on the lot, and as it goes taller, it has to get further away from the street so that it doesn't cast significant shadows, for instance. Mm -hmm. One of the fundamental um, attributes of, of, of zoning bulk regulations. Now, in 1961, for the first time, new density restrictions were put in place um, across the board for, for lots around the city. And so something called floor area ratio was created, which is basically a number that you multiply the area of your lot by, and it tells you how many square feet of building you can build. It gets a lot more complicated than that, but this is 
the fundamental mm-hmm. limitation on how much space can be built uh, in the city uh, on any piece of land. And zoning uh, has regulations that say what can be built on every piece of land uh, located basically throughout the city with the exceptions of parkland and, and certain other um, exceptions that, that don't have to comply with zoning. The cumulative effect of this is to regulate how much can be built in the city. And it was part of the intent in 1961 to ratchet that back a bit. Mm-hmm. And over the years, and I, I like to say that zoning is a gerund. It's you know, it's a thing that's continuing to happen. It's not like zoning happens and then ever since 1961, we've been just sitting here watching it. Um, it's constantly being modified because it doesn't completely fit what people want to see happen. Mm -hmm. And it gets modified and it gets modified through a process that is in part technical and in part political. Uh, And there have been important changes to the way that that process of amending zoning uh, occurs over the years. And in particular, um, one of the ones that looms large and I think looms uh, behind some of the, the state level reforms as well is that uh, in 1989, the city charter was amended for a variety of reasons because the Supreme Court found that New York City's Board of Estimate was unconstitutionally suppressing minority representation uh, in, in citywide matters. Uh, but th- a city council was created with small districts, the city council that we know and love today. And those uh, that, that city council was assigned the last the last vote in the review of land use applications. And that created a new texture to the way land use applications get reviewed because of the very strong opinions that are often held by neighborhood residents about something that's proposed in their backyards. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the it, it introduced a new and challenging dynamic, which the city council and the mayor and 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 city government have been managing in various ways ever since, where there's a lot of pressure on any individual council member from people in their district to stop stuff from getting built. And whatever the intentions, benevolent or otherwise, if any individual council member, they're they're given a really hard job, which is to respond to some pretty agitated constituents um, who are upset about something happening. And ultimately, the decision isn't just about what's happening in a neighborhood. It has to do with these broader citywide issues. You know, is there going to be enough housing if we don't build some all over the place? Um, but it really puts uh, individual council members in a, in a very difficult position, and it puts a lot of pressure on the leadership of the city council to structure this process and administer um, the land use review process in a way that is responsive, not just to the loud voices of people in a neighborhood, but also to the interests of the city as a whole. And I will say, you know, in terms of what's going on in the city now, I think it's been really heartening to see the the approach that Speaker Adams has taken to housing as an issue, definitely looking at it as an issue of equity, as an issue that's across the board important for all neighborhoods and not just a matter of local concern. So Mm -hmm. zoning changes can sometimes be made at the local level when someone wants to propose a building in a location and they need to change the zoning for their property. Or zoning changes can be proposed for a neighborhood as part of a, a city planning initiative, um, which which um, the city has several of those that they're working on right now. Or zoning regulations can be changed across the board and in ways that apply to properties around the city categorically based on you know the type of zoning district they're located in. Mm-hmm. And right now, that's a big topic of emphasis and reform because that is – 
a key part of loosening the kind of stranglehold of scarcity uh, on our, our zoning today. Right. And this goes to, obviously, uh, as I mentioned, the city of Yes for Housing Opportunity uh, zoning text amendment that has just recently been unveiled by the Adams administration, although it's been previewed for quite a while and, and something you were working on, as I mentioned in the introduction, at the Department of City Planning. And again, uh, I got into a whole lot of the details with City Planning Director Dan Gorodnik for folks that want to listen to that conversation after this one. Um, but that is about, uh, as the as the Turner phrase now goes, building a little more housing all over the city, building a little more housing in, in every neighborhood. And as you say, trying to sort of just pull back on some of that stranglehold that's been in place um, you know, since since 1961. I mean, is that fair to say that it's sort of like finally trying to go back and look at that? I mean, that's kind of how the mayor framed it when he when he unveiled this uh, proposal in some more detail recently. Yeah, I think that um, the the idea of a little bit more housing in every neighborhood is is responsive to a few different things. Um, one of them is this sort of overall supply issue that affects uh, everyone and that needs to be solved sort of at every level. It's not a what's the one thing we need to about to do about housing. It's that we need to do a, a bunch of different things that are each appropriate to the kind of neighborhoods they're located in. Mm -hmm. um, another issue that it addresses is this question of how to achieve zoning reform through the political process. Um, if it's something that just affects a few people, it becomes a subject of discussion for just a few, maybe a few districts and their official, their elected officials, or a few constituencies. But this is something that is going to affect neighborhoods everywhere, and everyone has to be part of the decision and part of the uh, the solution process. So politically, it takes a different shape when this gets presented to the legislature, to the city council. And finally, I think one of the dominant issues in housing over the last decade, if not more, and, and certainly more, has been concerns over gentrification. And gentrification uh, is, you know, when pressure on housing prices particularly uh, disproportionately affects a neighborhood that contains people who, uh, communities of color, low-income residents who have less housing security and who may be at greater risk of displacement from their neighborhoods from changes in the market that are going on. And when local solutions, when neighborhood-oriented solutions are proposed in neighborhoods that are definitely experiencing lots of housing stress, um, there's been a lot of concern about the kind of disruption that can occur at the neighborhood level. Now, I think there's a lot of confusion about whether new housing is the cause of the rise in rents or whether it is the response to the rise in rents. And I think there's a lot of evidence today that's been mounted by uh, research that new housing actually doesn't increase uh, rents in a neighborhood, but it tends to soften rent increases. But this happens in neighborhoods where rents are increasing much more than you know residents can withstand anyway. So this is not a solution to this neighborhood's housing issues. The solution is a little bit more housing everywhere so that you kind of take the pressure off of any one neighborhood. I think of it as like sort of like the pressure mounting in a, in a utility tunnel and a manhole cover bursting because this is the one place where the pressure can escape where you're allowed to build housing. So you see this manhole burst off <laughs> out mm -hmm. of the in, in a neighborhood where there's a lot of housing pressure. If you can release that pressure in neighborhoods all around, 
um, you can you can alleviate that pressure. Right. Well, and, and the thing is, right, that, that that the manhole covers are exploding in many, many neighborhoods because of how constrained the supply has been as the city grew and became more and more, you know, desirable over the last decades. And then, I, you know, I think one of the things you're getting at that I want to ask you about, though, is this um, the ways in which concerns about displacement and gentrification um, I want to ask you about about the Bloomberg years in a minute, but sort of taking these, you know, these last 20 years now as, um, you know, as something of a of a case study in what's gone on in zoning and housing where you had um, reaction where Mayor de Blasio came in as a sort of progressive response to the Bloomberg years and ways in which they were sort of seen as kind of the wealthy elite, you know, doing very well. And de Blasio, of course, running on tackling inequality in a number of ways. And there was almost, and I want to go back into the history a little bit more on this, but what you're getting at reminds me of this idea that there was almost in the de Blasio years at at, at sort of the political level, this idea that we have to slow down all this housing growth and mostly just focus on sort of deeply affordable housing and the challenges that come with that mindset. Now you can correct me if you don't agree that that was sort of the broadly political mindset in a way. And there were people clearly within the de Blasio administration, even the mayor himself who, who understood it maybe wasn't that simple and, and, and people looking at, at other solutions. But it seems to me that that was like a bit of the sort of broader political mindset of a lot of people who were eager to see someone coming in to fight inequality and take on some of the excesses of the Bloomberg years, let's just say. Um, but that the idea of sort of pulling back on housing growth wasn't really the right answer to the challenge, the deep, deep challenges with affordability that people were starting to really, really feel. Tell me where I'm wrong and right there. <laughs> well, I, listen, I, I think I, I worked um, in in several administrations at the Department of City Planning, and I, um, you know, having having been part of the process of of trying to address these issues from within government, I have a, a deep appreciation of the challenges that government faces and the fact that you know you don't always get it right but y- y- every administration has brought its own emphasis and its own um productive perspective and i think there's also been drawbacks that we can learn from like lessons learned in retrospect mm-hmm. that are important so you know I-, I wouldn't say that the de blasio administration ratcheted back on uh housing growth in general as a matter of fact the de Blasio administration kind of put um, the kibosh on downzonings that had been a popular mm-hmm. uh, a, a, a popular measure in the prior administration, particularly in lower density neighborhoods. And maybe we'll talk about that some more later. Um, so I, I don't think the de Blasio administration did anything to ratchet back on housing growth, but there was definitely in the zeitgeist, in the kind of political environment, um, a, a focus on, well, Affordability, not as just a priority, but as almost a gating condition for whether housing made sense. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, that made it difficult to maintain a broader focus on sustaining 
overall supply growth at the same time as we're trying to achieve our our goals for affordability. Um, and in some cases, it created what I um, have termed the hungry, hungry hippos problem of zoning, where what looks like an emphasis on getting more affordability in a particular project or in a particular geography is actually just kind of cannibalizing the resources that are there for the whole city to meet its affordability needs and just effectively move the limited pot of resources we have for affordable housing around from neighborhood to neighborhood, but don't actually give us more affordability. Um, I can, I can, I can well, sort of go deeper on that. Yeah, let, let's go deeper on that in a second. But but this also gets at the sort of um, conflict in the discussion almost of discussing sort of affordable housing, or as you just put it, sort of a housing affordability and making it a more affordable city versus what some people are often more narrowly defining as affordable housing, meaning rent regulated housing and how you're talking about ways in which um, the city uses a sort of defined amount of subsidy dollars to help create rent regulated housing versus a broader approach that also includes the notion that a lot more housing in the city, a lot more supply that includes some of those efforts to create rent regulated housing also helps make a more affordable city more broadly and relieve some of that pressure that you were talking about and, and pulls back on gentrification. And that's part of where from my where I'm sitting, and I and I know this wasn't the case necessarily internally at City Hall or at the Department of City Planning, but that the conversation has really shifted in these last couple of years for a different understanding of those dynamics and that sort of the political zeitgeist, as you were saying, was that there was a lot of sort of skeptic, sort of supply side skepticism and that the focus really needed to be on affordable housing subsidies to create more rent regulated housing. Yeah, I think that, you know, listen to, to the to 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 give the you know the kind of benefit of of historical perspective the evidence base for this has really improved in recent years from what what it was a decade ago and now we really sort of see the uh, you know from some pretty rigorous research how the shortage of housing you know is the primary driver uh, based on statistical analysis of homelessness in high cost cities that it's really more about the lack of housing than it is about any other factor than that that's why people are experiencing homelessness in record numbers in in many cities um so i think the the emphasis has you know has has grown in recent years but i think um you know this this issue of we need both supply and affordability is a, is a challenging one because we often are discussing affordable housing proposals with blinkers on um thinking about a project you know we're, we're, when we're debating a proposal to build housing in a neighborhood does 40% affordable housing or 50% affordable housing sound better than 25% affordable housing I mean, to me, it does. It sounds, <laughs> right. it sounds good to me. Right. We all want to see more. To mo- well, housing. yeah, to most, most, to most people, there, there's people who don't like the sound of "quote unquote" affordable housing. But fair uh, enough. Fair enough. Get into that. For, yeah. For those of yeah. us who are trying. But to- again, when we, but when, when you say affordable housing here, we're talking about rent regulated housing, right? right. We're not talking about well, just generally affordable to sort of right. you know average New Yorkers looking for an affordable place to live. Right. I'll say that, you know, that it is a it is a, a very um, blurry term of art. And I think it's worthwhile focusing on exactly what we mean by it. I think 
often when we're saying affordable housing, we're saying not just rent regulated housing, because rent regulated housing, uh, there's a lot of rent regulated housing out there that is not uh, income restricted. It's not means tested. We're talking about a specific kind of housing that the city builds the city, I should say the city doesn't build, but the city finances or uh, allows through incentive programs that restricts not just the rents that can be charged to residents, but also the incomes of people when they um, rent the unit for the first time. So this is housing that Mm -hmm. is targeted to people at specific income levels. And it's an effort that the city has made and through many, many programs to try to address areas of greatest need, trying to address you know, people at the lowest income levels and not just um, whoever can pass a credit check for the unit, regardless of what the rent is. Mm-hmm. So that's an, you know, that, that is an important um, uh, distinction. And, you know, the, the, all of these different kinds of housing, um, new unregulated housing, uh, new, uh, uh, income restricted housing, and then the existing large supply of, of regulated housing are really important components of the housing supply. I think uh, it's it's also limited the city's attention to higher density neighborhoods. This focus on um, what we're calling income restricted housing. This is housing that is produced through subsidy programs or tax incentive programs. Um, it requires he- cumbersome regulatory agreements and teams of lawyers and 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 financial experts in order to participate in the closing and the ongoing uh, uh monitoring and regulation of buildings it's a it's a pretty cumbersome instrument and it works for large multifamily buildings um then there are small buildings that are exist throughout our neighborhoods and those are not going to lend themselves to this set of tools there are different ways that housing is sort of affordable and accessible to people and i think one of the things that the current administration is focusing on, and and I think that they could focus on even more, um, is that delivering a a wider variety of types of housing is another important way of getting at the kind of housing that's going to be affordable and fit the lives of of different New Yorkers. You have um, the opportunity to live in the garden apartment in a small home is going to pre- present you with a different sized apartment than a single family home in a low density n- district will. But our zoning is really much more permissive of larger single family homes than it is of smaller rental units in low density neighborhoods, even though they're a really important part of our housing supply. And we know um, that you know from experience, from experience not just in New York City, but in our suburbs nationally, that zoning that restricts the variety of housing that can be built that prohibits the lowest cost types of housing is exclusionary in nature. It keeps people from finding homes in neighborhoods. It keeps them socioeconomically and racially exclusive. And this is not something that obviously needs to be part of our housing policy. The city has uh, high density neighborhoods and low density neighborhoods. The City of Yes zoning proposal has a variety of proposed shifts within it, including ensuring in some of the lower density areas that things can be built that have already been built there, but were sort of zoned, you know, restricted by changes to the zoning code. So sort of uh, pulling back some of the that um, those restrictions, opening things up to some of what's already there in many cases, and then in some cases also allowing a little bit more development in, in, in certain ways, but really sort of at least 
in this set of proposals, um, taking, again, sort of a fairly gentle approach to the low density areas in terms of, again, this, this focus on a little more housing everywhere. Should New York City not be looking to turn some low density neighborhoods into high density neighborhoods, especially where transit is rich? It's certainly uh, an important thing for for uh, it's it's certainly one of the important things to do is to look for locations throughout the city that could support more density. I think there's a, a difference in the nature of proposing something like that from what's proposed in City of Yes. And I think they, they're, they're not mutually exclusive. As a matter of fact, they can be complementary, but they're two very different things. Mm-hmm. What City of Yes uh, for housing opportunity is aiming to do is this, you know, that the city has professed um, is to build a little bit more housing everywhere. There are zoning districts mapped in neighborhoods across the city. You have everything from R1 districts, which uh, are limited to single family homes to R10 districts, which allow high rise residential towers. And there's everything in between R1, R2, 3, 4, 5, all the way to 10. R, R being residential, as you just yes, said. Yes, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, the This sort of hierarchy of zoning districts is something that the city is trying to retain. We're not we're not looking at a, a proposal here that says, um, let's take low density districts and make them higher density than our high density districts or, 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 you know, it's not trying to change the overall balance. It's just trying to lift up that balance across the board in ways that are appropriate to, to each district. So, and, and as Dan Gorodnik said, when I talked to him and when he's, and he said elsewhere, and, and you've worked on this, obviously uh, just again, allowing some of the types of buildings that are already there to be built again. <laughs> well, yes. Um, I mean, I think I, I'd like to talk a little bit about sort of what we've done to our low density districts through zoning. Yeah. And it's um, it's it's pretty profound. And we've actually been doing some uh, additional research on this at CHPC and I can give sort of a glimmer of what we've begun to discover. But the the, the issue is that, um, yes, there are places that you could plan through a neighborhood plan to build more. Mm-hmm. This current conversation about citywide zoning reform does not mean that that should not happen. It's just not part of the same conversation. Um, you could superimpose that. There are neighborhood plans underway in, in, in locations around the city that the, the Department of City Planning has launched in all five boroughs. And those are all oriented towards trying to find ways to better plan the neighborhood and allow more opportunities for housing where it makes sense in particular locations based on local conditions. This mm-hmm. conversation about zoning reform is what can be done so that neighborhoods across the city all can do a little bit more. And I want to come back to this issue of kind of the cost of housing, um, because I think this is an important, the, the, the variety of housing types that we have and the price points that housing is available at, because, you know, affordable in scare quotes housing sort of in terms of income restricted regulated housing is not um, an attainable solution for small buildings where you you don't have a team of lawyers who can come in and you know negotiate the complicated regulatory agreements that are necessary or the complicated funding arrangements you're talking about um, how can we find ways to add housing that cost less than building a new apartment building, which is a really important question. If you look at how much it costs to build new housing in New York City, as a result of our land prices, the cost of materials and labor and regulatory red tape, all of these things contribute to an extremely high cost. If you build new housing, the rents that it takes to support 
the cost of constructing and operating that housing are higher than what most New Yorkers can afford. You're talking about three, four thousand dollars a unit in rent in order to just pay for the construction of a new building. What does that mean? It means that we can only afford to build housing that either we subsidize or that are going to be catering to people at higher incomes. Well, what opportunities do we have to build housing that is accessible to people um, at lower cost? When you talk about accessory dwelling units, when you talk about converting a single family home into a two family home, these are things that don't cost as much as building a new apartment building, or at least they shouldn't. Um, there are ways to um, allow more flexibility in the regulations than we do today. There are ways to um, take the regulations and look at them through the lens of cost and figure out ways to make important, uh, you know, to meet all the health and safety requirements we have to meet without imposing unnecessary costs on new housing. Uh, we've looked at this in the conversion of basements. We have been um, uh, the evaluator for the East New York uh, basement apartment conversion pilot. When I say we, I mean CHPC. Um, and when we working with the local partners there, Cypress Hills Development Corporation, uh, and with the individual homeowners going through the process of trying to, you know, legalize a, a basement apartment, we found enormous regulatory impediments to the conversion of basement apartments, some of which exist at the city level, some of which exist at the state level. But we also found just these that, that cost, these unnecessary costs imposed on the process. If you have a basement that is six inches too low in its ceiling heights to comply with building codes, um, you might have to pay $150,000, $200,000 to dig out the foundation, make sure that you're not compromising your house or your neighbor's houses structurally when you do that, uh, just to meet a code requirement that doesn't really materially add to the safety of that unit. We have to think about ways that we can modify our regulations to allow, in reasonable ways, lower cost ways of adding housing that is going to meet the needs of New Yorkers. And take take that now to the other side of the coin here, if, if that's a fair way to say it, though, and saying more about what you were talking about related to the subsidies that we use right so there's there's that piece of the equation that you just outlined related to basement apartments and and other types of housing where um it's it's not so much about the financing of the medium or larger size apartment buildings but when we get into that equation you you touched a little bit on this but say a little bit more about what the city is spending in affordable housing subsidies, where that money comes from and how it could be better used or ways in which people don't quite, uh, you know, think about the ways to use it in the right way. Um, when we, when, when, when New York city subsidizes affordable housing, um, that's coming from a, a finite amount of money that's been determined in budgets. Um, some of that money comes, I think from all different levels of government, but, um, say a little bit about how, what the city's doing with that money. Uh, if you have an estimate of about how much this New York City is is spending on affordable housing subsidies per year, and how to think about doing that in different or better ways. Right. Um, so New York City is essentially unique among cities in the U.S. in that it spends 
far and away more of its own money on uh, addressing affordable housing needs than any anywhere else. Most places in the country use primarily the resources that are made available by the federal government and by state governments um, passed through from the federal government. There are important resources like the low-income housing tax credit, uh, like tax-exempt bond financing that um, is available uh, at the state level and then allocated um, by the state. Um, the city also appropriates its own money uh, for affordable housing to subsidize affordable housing. And on the order of something like $2 billion a year in funding for uh, new and preserved affordable housing uh, around the city. The important thing, well, there are important things about, about these funding streams. One, they are large and that is important. And two, they are finite which means that the decisions that are made about individual projects and how these resources get used have implications for all the other potential projects out there. If you spend more money, and it sometimes will make sense to, spend more money to, to provide deeper subsidy uh, to a project to reach lower incomes, you know that's great because we get housing to people who otherwise would never be able to access or afford it. Um, but what it means is that there's less money available for all the other things we're trying to do on affordable housing. Can we appropriate more money through the state and city budget processes? That's a very important issue. But there's fundamentally a limit. Budgets have to be balanced. You know, cities and state, uh, the the city and the state have to, you know, manage their priorities. And mm-hmm. you know, that's what the budget process is all about. There are also federal resources that are also finite in their own way. For instance, uh, the low-income housing tax credit, which is the single biggest program for building affordable housing around the whole country. Um, There's something wonky here uh, called the 50% test. uh, That uh, means that a project financed, an affordable housing building financed using the low-income housing tax credit has to get at least half of its funding from tax-exempt bonds. And each state is limited in the amount of tax-exempt bond financing it can provide uh, around in to, for, for all purposes within the state. And increasingly, not just New York, but states around the country are hitting that cap, mm-hmm. which means that the 50% test is a practical limit on how much housing can be built using the low-income housing tax credit. If that test could be lowered to a 25% test, then you could basically use the tax credit to fund something like twice the number of uh, low-income housing uh, developments in New York State because you could spread that that bond cap, that that uh, taxes and bond financing among more projects. So there are ways that additional federal- I'm glad, I'm glad people can rewind the podcast to to re-listen to that as we got into, uh-huh. as you got into the weeds there because it's complicated, but-, but- but fundamentally, it's people just. Should, but people should also understand this is compl- when you get into this financing. It's complicated, and there are different levels of government offering different, you know, pieces of the puzzle here. Right, and and, and I think that you know, coming back to this point about these resources are finite. It doesn't mean that you know they have to be used stingily. It just means that we have to be candid about the implications of decisions. If you take a project that could be financed with one form of subsidy. Uh, you know, w- w- without subsidy, and you make it into a project that requires subsidy in order to meet a more ambitious affordability target, you are invisibly sort of be- behind the curtain taking money away from another project, whether that we know what project that is or whether it's another project that hasn't yet materialized for this year's funding. 
We don't know, but there's kind of an invisible victim there that's really important to keep in mind. And this gets us to everyone's favorite topic, which is tax incentives, mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, the sort of now uh, deceased 421A program. But before you get into that, okay, what you're getting at here, though, is stuff that happens all the time in this process where city council members essentially are negotiating about whether the full city council will approve a project that requires a zoning change. And a city council member is sometimes saying, I'm not going to approve this zoning change for a private development that wants to build bigger or different than the zoning rules allow. So, of course, there's an there's an application there. It's not, quote unquote, as of right development. But I'm only going to do that if there's an agreement about deeper levels of affordability than are required under the city's mandatory inclusionary housing program, which was passed during the de Blasio administration to set a baseline for certain amounts of affordable housing that must be included when uh, a rezoning is granted. And you have city council members negotiating either with the developers and or with the city government to use potentially the city government subsidy to kick in there that you're saying if it goes to a certain project, that agreement is made, but then it's not going to another project. And I I guess the question is, do you have one or two sort of guidelines about how you think those priorities should be crafted? Is it that the limited subsidy dollars that the city has should not be sent to deepen affordability in projects that would include mandatory inclusionary housing and are in, I don't know, higher income neighborhoods? Or is there a way of thinking about prioritization there? Yeah, I think it's less a formula and a kind of shortcut to what's the right decision in in these circumstances. And I think the issue is really about being candid and transparent about the trade-offs that are inherent in these decisions, because these are not simple decisions. It is important to get affordability in high cost neighborhoods that are close to lots of job opportunities where, you know, residents of, of, of all income levels can in, enjoy quality neighborhood services, send their kids to high performing schools, all sorts of things that are really, really important from a kind of equity of opportunity standpoint. But there's a limit um, on how much you want to steer your affordable housing funds away from communities with a lot of need, for instance, where there are a lot of residents with a deep need for, for, for additional affordable housing. There's a balance. We need to find ways to do both. But what doesn't serve us is when we obscure those trade-offs. Um, I, there was a project um, that uh, I actually went and, and, and testified on in, uh, about this very issue because several months ago, uh, it was the Five World Trade Center uh, development proposal where there have been proposals, you know, let's make the new housing at Five World Trade Center 100% affordable. And I did not say that was a bad idea. I don't think it is a bad idea. Wouldn't it be great if we could get 100% affordable housing? Now, the problem is it's very expensive housing to build. And the money that would go towards writing down the rents in, in that very costly building down to affordable levels would be money that doesn't get sent to another project. And all I said in this testimony was, let's just be candid about what resources are being redirected from where. Because at the end of the day, there are neighborhoods in the city where the only investment 
in new housing is investment that the city makes through its affordable housing programs. There are neighborhoods where the real estate market is not going in and building new housing, but that the new housing that gets built is the HPD, HDC financed 100% affordable you know, for for mostly low income residents, um, uh, the, the, that kind of product that um, really meets a, a pronounced need in that neighborhood. So it's not that that's the only kind of housing we need to be building, but that we just need to be upfront about the trade offs. And I think that will lead to better decisions if we're just honest with ourselves about that. And and there there are certainly arguments to make for adding subsidy, uh, as you say, in some of those sort of uh, neighborhoods that are transit rich and amenity rich and, and you know, providing more deeply affordable housing. This is something that Mayor Adams, you know, talked about in terms of, uh, you know, he talked about on the campaign trail um, and somewhat in office, you know, sort of upzoning wealthier areas of the city um to to increase the availability of affordable affordable housing and income restricted housing um all right so we only have about 10 more minutes together i want to make sure we get to a couple more things here uh first reminding people you're listening to max politics with howard slatkin executive director of citizens housing and planning council and a former longtime official at the new york city department of city planning um you are starting to touch on uh, the importance of the expired 421A state uh, tax uh, exemption program to help encourage housing growth, including affordable housing in the rental market. Before you jump in on that, I do want to note for people that you wrote an op-ed about zoning uh, for Gotham Gazette earlier this year. I really encourage everyone to read it. If you haven't, it was titled, Don't Be Fooled by New York's Illusionary Zoning. In it, you say that the misuse of zoning, often driven by good intentions, as we're talking about here, is a major cause of the structural housing shortage that drives up housing prices for everyone, fuels gentrification pressure, drives some New Yorkers to leave the city and leaves others inadequately housed or homeless, and and that there are keys to understanding what you call illusionary zoning. Uh, and you give several examples, including the hungry, hungry hippos that you mentioned that we were just talking about, about this idea that when uh, either developers or elected officials or whoever is is uh, trying to pursue deeper affordability for certain projects and using those subsidies, everybody's sort of fighting for a fixed amount. And if it goes one place, it doesn't go others and and there's uh, a number of sort of examples other examples you give as well as as some solutions so if there's anything else you want to say right now about sort of misuses of zoning go ahead and or jump right into what you're going to say on sort of the state level tax uh incentive program sure well maybe i'll, I'll try to, to to sort of talk about both at the same time i think that um part of the illusion that i was referring to with illusionary zoning is that zoning can create affordable housing. Um, you know, zoning is a complicated and obscure, and you know, if you want to get into all the details, can be a really confusing place to be. Um, but zoning is, in effect, just a series of restrictions on what you can do with a piece of property. It doesn't make anything happen. It doesn't make affordable housing get built. Um, it can place conditions on what can be built unless affordable housing is being. Uh, provided, but it doesn't actually provide the resources that are necessary in order to make housing affordable. As I mentioned, you know, if you build a building from scratch, the rents that you need to pay 
for the construction are higher than what's affordable. So if you really want the units to be affordable, you have to find a way of offsetting the costs of that building in one way or another. And the way that affordability has been provided in in New York City for for sort of for privately financed uh, new construction housing has been through tax incentive programs through through the various generations of the the 421a program which existed from the 1970s in many many iterations up through uh just 2022 that program well pausing for a second the rents that it takes to pay the bills are higher than the rents people can afford to pay the subsidy is what makes up that gap. So the city can provide subsidy through its financing sources, through tax credits and other sources of, of financing, and help write down the you know the the rents down to levels that can can be afforded. Or you can give people housing vouchers that help them pay those full rents that sort of boost what they can afford to pay to the level of what uh, pays the bills for the building. Or what the tax incentive program effectively did is take the future revenues from new development and turn them into dollars for affordable housing. Uh, Instead of collecting tax revenues from the new building, or instead of collecting additional tax revenues from the new building that are based on the sort of additional value of the new building, what the program did is said, okay, developer, you can keep those tax revenues. The city will forego those tax revenues for a number of years. As long as you provide units that are affordable at or below this income level, and um, it's not cheap, it's it's not a it's it's a it's a not insignificant amount of tax revenue to forego to convince um, builders to um, you know provide these units as as affordable at these at these low income levels, but that is what was used to sort of add more affordable housing resources to the pot. I mentioned before the other sources that we have for affordable housing are finite. The thing that was different about development using that tax incentive program is that it was additive to that pool of other subsidies. Um, when a new because building, it's, it's, oh, it's foregoing tax revenue, so it's it, you're not using anything coming out of the the pot of subsidy that you that you otherwise have. Right, it's not something that comes out of the budgeted pot of subsidy, and to the extent that 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 tax incentive is necessary for the building to be built in the first place, it's not revenue you're going to get without the tax incentive anyway. So it kind of, uh, you know, was additive affordable housing money that the city was able to generate through a tax incentive process. Um, and the, the, that w- was a really important contribution when you looked at the uh, affordable housing production numbers that HPD released for the last uh, fiscal year, fully half of the affordable units built in the city or, or closed by HPD in the past year were built through the support of the 421A program. So today, after the death of that program, We've cut the resources we have for affordable housing in in half, essentially, compared to what they were the year before. And there's just not, you know, there's just not a way to make that up easily. We don't have new dollars to replace those uh, dollars that we repurposed through the the tax incentive program. I don't. We're not going to get into a whole discussion of all the details of of the 428 program. There's a lot of people who are supportive of replacing it, who said there were flaws to it, there were flaws flaws in, in the enforcement of it, and there's reasons that it sort of got a bad name 
that were legitimate, even among people who want to see a replacement. So I don't want to go into all the ins and outs of that. And I'm not taking anything you're saying as sort of a full throated uh, support of the prior version. I mean, add in anything you want here. But um, one thing I, I wanted to make sure to get to on this subject, though, is you talked about, you know, the question of what zoning does or does not create. There are ways in which the mandatory inclusionary housing zoning text amendment that was passed, I believe, in 2016 under de Blasio and the city council then um, that requires uh, affordable housing in new development that gets rezoning approval. But there are questions, as you wrote in this op-ed and have discussed, that that relied on the existence of something like a 421A program and that there's real challenges in seeing those requirements actually bring in the desired affordable housing if it's if the balance sheets don't work. I mean, and, you know, again, I, the balance sheet conversation is a very complicated one as well. But uh, for the purposes of this discussion, that issue that there's attempts in the zoning code to write in this again mandatory affordable housing as mandatory inclusionary housing is but that to make to juice that and to juice that overall production while the private market then helps create this income restricted housing was supposed to be reliant on at least this tax incentive program what did i what did i how did i did i say that right <laughs> no, uh, not much I can add to that. Actually, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, that that is absolutely correct. And, and you know, full disclosure, I was uh, perhaps the primary author of the mandatory inclusionary housing program and the sort of related studies that we put out um, at the uh, for the city at the time um, uh, documented th the issue that you're talking about, that basically – as I mentioned before, zoning doesn't provide the fuel, the funding that gets the affordable housing built. It doesn't achieve uh, affordability um, on its own. In order for the mandatory inclusionary housing program to function, the feasibility analysis that was done in 2016 to inform that program uh, identified the need for a tax incentive like 421. It didn't say we had to have this specific version of the program. The, the, the program was also on hiatus. It had expired in 2015 and hadn't yet been reauthorized. Um, so there are, um, you know, there, there's a gap. The, the program was, and, and this is awkward because one is controlled, the zoning is controlled by the city and the tax incentive is controlled by the state legislature. These two things are really hitched to each other. Um, mandatory inclusionary housing doesn't work without a tax incentive to support the financial feasibility of mixed income rental housing. It doesn't have to be the exact tax incentive that existed, but someone has to come up with one that does. Otherwise, that mandatory inclusionary housing program doesn't really allow housing. And that is not helpful toward addressing the supply crisis. So the both and side of this, we need affordability and we need supply, really speaks to the need to replace that program. It's not just about mandatory inclusionary housing, it's about all the other areas in which mixed income rental housing can be built through the, you know, the 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 use of a program like that. But it's a it's a really important element in the city's ability to plan for its housing capacity and to be able to, to deliver mixed income housing. All right. In our last couple of minutes here, in brief, what are some things 
that either we haven't mentioned or you just want to highlight again, what are a few things that from your perspective really need to happen to address the cities and, and the suburbs housing supply shortage, whether it's at the city level or the state level? What are any things you want to warn against happening? Uh, are there things that you know uh, people should really be on the lookout for that could be problematic? Um, I don't know if that's you know again returning to this idea of some of the sort of Bloomberg era down zonings that came along with some of the up zonings they did and and put some real restrictions on uh, low density neighborhoods that the city is now really wrestling with here. Um, but what are what are are there things we haven't mentioned that are essential to really addressing this crisis that you just want to note um, in, in our last couple of minutes here and anything you want to warn warn against? Sure. Um, you know, I think we've we've mentioned a lot of things that, you know, the the importance of uh, changing zoning in ways that allow more housing uh, overall and, and allow more housing in ways that don't require discretionary review, the sort of years long environmental and land use review process, which um, can add, you know, extraordinary costs to the to, to building housing and, and adds years to the process of building it. We, we need more housing to be allowed to be built as of right. Um, that should be not just in the areas where we've seen a lot of housing built, but in all the districts across the city. Um, uh, just I'll say just as a teaser, um, we've been working on unpacking some of the changes that occurred in low density districts through the down zonings um, that occurred uh, uh, to, um, we found 59% of our low density districts uh, that were rezoned during the, essentially the, the, the Bloomberg administration. Um, the effects of that on restricting the kinds of housing that are available in low density neighborhoods have been pretty profound and we need to do something to reverse that and to make those neighborhoods more inclusive. Um, we need to keep in mind cost control. It's something that is pretty unsexy, but is really, really important because as I mentioned, it costs more to build housing than people can afford to pay in rent. The fundamental kind of cost versus uh, what we can afford to build versus what we can afford to rent are out of line with each other. And the further out of line they get, the more we increase the costs of building new housing, the less far every dollar we put towards affordable housing goes, the less we buy with every dollar we spend on affordable housing, the more it costs to build each unit. So I think cost control, you know, is the kind of thing that you can sort of like glaze over when people mm -hmm. start to talk about it, but it's fundamental. The, the more we can find ways to keep the costs of adding housing down, the more we can find lower cost ways of adding housing, the more headway we're going to be able to make on bringing housing within reach for more New Yorkers. I don't want to shortchange the importance of federal resources, federal support for NYCHA, increased federal support for, for vouchers uh, for, for people at low, very low incomes to support their ability to sort of, you know, to, to raise the floor of what they can afford to pay to something that's going to help support the operating costs of, 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 of even existing housing. Those are those are vital things. I mean, federal action is maybe not the lowest hanging fruit on, on all these fronts right now, but we can't lose sight of that. And then I think finally, the last thing that I would come back to is something that I would just characterize as normalizing housing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this this sort of Jane Jacobs, Robert Moses, mid-century mindset of 
should we let this thing happen or you know uh, looking at you know what our our vision for the the underbuilt spaces in the city uh, uh is i think we have to take stock of that in a different way historically when i you know started in planning as a as a junior planner for the city you know the the first thing that people would sort of suggest is well if the nearby housing is four stories tall and if the zoning next door is this district then you know the logical thing to do would be to match that district that's a very logical formal thing to do is make a zoning map that makes sense when looked at in the abstract the problem is this issue that i discussed before that our zoning has created the 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 texture of the zoning as it exists citywide is systematically restricting what we can build. And so if you're going to match that, you are matching the plan to restrict what we can build. When we look at what can be built on a site, we shouldn't be saying, does it match what's surrounding it? That's the wrong question. The That's right not question- planning. For, for, for it's a certain type of planning. <laughs> well, you know, but 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 fundamentally, when we make decisions about what should be allowed to be built on sites that exist in our neighborhoods, it shouldn't be what's going to match what's next door to it. That's a nice thing to be able to do. But if we if that's our plan, we're going to perpetuate the sort of systematic undersupply of housing around the city. The question we have to ask is. Well, how much can we build there in a way that's compatible with, that relates well to the surrounding neighborhood? We shouldn't be trying to match what we already have. We should be trying to augment it in ways that is consistent with, uh, you know, the, the ongoing life and vitality of the neighborhood. We can't look at our neighborhoods as places that are done and that we're trying to freeze. We have to look at them as places that are going to continue to grow and evolve because as a city, we are going to continue to grow and evolve. But even that, right, I mean, I'm glad you added that on because I was even thinking as you said that, but that also doesn't even bring in, you know, that that's also still very focused on sort of neighborhood character in a way. It's not saying everything needs to sort of match neighborhood, quote unquote, character, but um, but not taking in also the citywide sort of need or even a borough-wide need or, or you know, sort of what's the um, at least democratic – lowercase d sort of collective vision for a growing and thriving city that lots of people can come to and find, you know, affordable places to live or, or remain in and find affordable places to live. So that has to be sort of part of the part of that discussion as well, right? Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's both. I I, I don't think it's an either or I, I I'm an optimist about <laughs> the ability to chart a course for growth that doesn't demolish and replace neighborhoods, but that builds on them and augments them and you know helps them evolve over time. Today's neighborhoods are not going to look the same way forever. They're going to evolve. How can they evolve in ways that you know builds on the strengths of the neighborhood that sort of retains some of the reasons why people want to be there in the first place? Um, but also accounts for growth. It's not, you know, the, the the view of urban renewal was, well, how can we take these neighborhoods that aren't doing what we need to do and replace them with neighborhoods that do what we need to do? And it involved a lot of pain and suffering and displacement and inequity and some pretty rough decisions along the way. Mm-hmm. I think there are ways to grow that don't involve leveling our communities, but really involve finding ways that they can grow. And I think that reconciling those those two things, the sort of the value of the communities we have and the need to have more is really the planning challenge for us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and gets back to some of, um, you know, what is at at the heart of this uh, a, a little bit more housing uh, in every neighborhood, as we discussed with the city's 
uh, city of yes for housing opportunity proposal that um, that that you helped work on, of course. Um, all right, there's like ten other things I want to get to, but we, we we can't, we won't this time. Uh, we'll, we'll 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 do it again down the road when we see what is or is not happening at the city and state levels here in the coming months. Any last thing, Howard Slacken? Anything we didn't get to? Because I know there's a lot of pieces to this puzzle. Um, any any final thing that's uh, burning a hole in your in your pocket here? Uh, I'll I'll go back to a teaser, which is when we rezoned low-density neighborhoods. We didn't decrease the amount of building that could be built there. We didn't change the floor area that you could build on a lot, but we heavily restricted the number of units you could provide. So what we did in our low-density neighborhoods is say you could build larger homes as long as they're single-family homes in, in general, but we didn't allow people to build a second apartment or an accessory dwelling unit or other things that would diversify the availability of housing and provide choices that aren't super costly. Um, I think it, it, one of the really important elements of the City of Yes for Housing opportunity is the opportunity to go back and fix some of the things that were broken. The absurdity uh, that if you had a two-family home that you had converted to a single-family home and you wanted to make it a two-family home again, you couldn't do that unless you added a new parking space. Um, that was what a zoning text amendment passed in 2010 uh, uh, required. We created a one-way ratchet for our lower-density neighborhoods that they had to get even lower density and they had to get even less affordable. And I think you know we've been doing some research, and I'm looking forward to sharing some more of it um, on how that's affecting people. Um, it's not just affecting people in other neighborhoods, but people in low density neighborhoods are struggling, and uh, we need to find ways of better meeting their needs. And I, I'm, I'm looking forward to being able to add more ideas to the hopper um, as to how we can do that. All right. Well, some good uh, teases there of what's uh, to come from uh, Citizens Housing and Planning Council, and in the meantime. You should read uh, Howard Slacken's op-ed at Gotham Gazette from earlier this year titled Don't Be Fooled by New York's Illusionary Zoning. It's a good, important, very clear, uh, clearly stated read on uh, some of these zoning issues and some things uh, maybe we didn't even touch on that are in there that are that are worth checking out. Howard Slacken, Executive Director of Citizens Housing and Planning Council, thanks very much for all the time and thoughts, and we'll uh, check in down the line. Thanks so much for having me.